Chapter Seventeen of the Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter Seventeen: Chemistry at High Temperatures. It is not only into the region of low temperatures that such a surprising advance has recently been made. Much has been achieved also in the other direction, and it has lately become possible to realize within a limited space a degree of heat far beyond what can be produced with the aid of ordinary fuel alone. This attainment of extremes of heat and cold has immensely widened the range of temperature over which the chemist can study the properties of matter, and, as a result, many new substances, as well as new methods of making old substances, have been discovered. One result of low-temperature research, as we have seen, is that all the known gases have been reduced to the liquid state, and in many cases even solidified. Similarly, by the recent application of very high temperature, the most refractory solids have been melted and even vaporized. Apart, however, from the extremely high temperatures reached by recent methods, there are easily attainable temperatures at which many substances, existing ordinarily as stable solids, are first melted and then converted into vapor. Now the possibility of changing any substance into vapor without decomposing it involves a great deal for it means that a distillation can be carried out, and as a method of separating and purifying chemical compounds, this is one of the most ancient and valuable laboratory operations. When, for instance, a salt solution, in other words, a mixture of a salt and water, is boiled and the steam condensed, it is found to be pure water, perfectly free from salt. This operation of boiling and then condensing the vapor, distillation as it is called, obviously makes it possible to separate salt and water, simply because the water is easily vaporized, in contrast to the salt. The same principle may be applied in numberless other cases. Metals, for instance, which are comparatively volatile, such as mercury and zinc, may be separated by distillation from others, such as copper and iron, which are mixed with them, and which are much less easily vaporized. A rise of temperature, however, not only makes it possible to melt and then vaporize many solid substances, but it also has the general effect of weakening the bonds which hold together the atoms in a molecule. On heating a chemical compound, the chances are that when a certain temperature is reached, it begins to break up into simpler compounds, or even into the constituent atoms. This change is known as decomposition or dissociation. The former term is applied to the case in which the atoms or simpler molecules, having been once separated by heat, show no signs of coming together again on cooling they have done with each other for good and all. But in many cases the interesting observation has been made that the separation caused by heating the compound molecule is spontaneously reversed on cooling, and the compound is reformed, provided, of course, that the atoms or simpler molecules have been allowed to remain side by side. The effect of heating such a compound is described as dissociation, and this is followed on cooling by an association of the separated atoms or molecules. These cases of dissociation are of great interest, and there are many common substances which undergo this change on heating. Carbonate of lime in its various forms, limestone, chalk, and marble, is one of them. When heated, it breaks up into quicklime, calcium oxide, and carbon dioxide. If the latter were left in contact with the quicklime, then on cooling, recombination would take place, and the carbonate of lime would be regenerated. This being so, the reader may ask how it is possible to convert limestone into lime by heating or burning in kilns. The explanation is quite simple, 
for in the lime kilns the carbon dioxide is constantly being removed by the draft, so that when the lime begins to cool, the carbon dioxide with which it would gladly have combined is not there. This interesting phenomenon of a chemical change taking place in one direction at a particular temperature, and in the opposite direction at another temperature, is very well illustrated by one of the common methods for obtaining oxygen from the atmosphere on the large scale. There is a solid compound, somewhat similar to quicklime, known as barium oxide, which at a temperature of 1100 degrees Fahrenheit, or thereabout, readily takes in more oxygen, forming a new substance, barium dioxide. The grip of the latter, however, on the extra atom of oxygen is not very secure, and by raising the temperature to 1560 degrees, it can be so weakened that the gas is released and may be collected. In the actual manufacturing process, a current of air is pumped into retorts heated to 1300 degrees Fahrenheit and containing barium oxide, which takes up the oxygen and allows the nitrogen to pass on. When the charging is completed, the current of air is shut off, and the retorts, which now contain a certain proportion of barium dioxide, are connected with a suction pump. The effect of this diminution of pressure is the same as that of a rise of temperature, and from the engineering point of view it is better to alter the pressure than to alter the temperature. The barium dioxide accordingly gives up the extra oxygen which it extracted from the air, and the oxygen so obtained is compressed in steel bottles under a pressure of 120 atmospheres and sent into the market. The barium oxide may be used over and over again in the same fashion, and theoretically at least, a given quantity of this substance should suffice for the winning of unlimited quantities of oxygen from the air, by alternate association and dissociation. The highest temperatures reached in furnaces fed with ordinary fuel, the furnaces employed for technical purposes, lie about 3200 degrees Fahrenheit, but it is possible to get a few hundred degrees beyond that with the oxyhydrogen blowpipe. When we feed a coal gas flame with a blast of air as in an ordinary blowpipe, we get a very high temperature, but the effect is wonderfully increased by substituting oxygen for air. The reason of this is not far to seek. Roughly speaking, air consists of one part oxygen to four parts of nitrogen. The latter gas, although it takes no part in the combustion, yet passes through the flame and has to be warmed up, thereby absorbing a considerable proportion of the heat produced by the combustion. In the oxyhydrogen, or oxy-coal gas flame, the nitrogen is not there to dilute the active oxygen, so that the temperature reached is very much higher. The increased heating effect secured in this way makes it possible to melt platinum, and the operation is actually carried out in the winning of this metal from its ores. The furnace in which the platinum is melted must obviously be of some material which has a higher melting point still, and quicklime is found to fulfill this requirement. Pipe clay, when put in the oxyhydrogen flame, is immediately fused to a sort of glass, while gold and silver not only melt, but vaporize into a dense smoke. Even the temperatures of the oxyhydrogen or oxy-coal gas flame, however, are comparatively chilly in comparison with those which are now attainable in the electric furnace. Within the last fifteen or twenty years, the efficiency of this furnace has been so improved that temperatures of 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit can be reached, and under these conditions many common substances are found to behave in a most extraordinary manner. Such a furnace consists essentially of a hollow box made of some non-conducting material, into the cavity of which project two carbon rods. An electric arc is established between these rods, with the result that an extraordinary degree of heat is attained in the cavity of the furnace. 
As was said in a previous chapter, electricity is generated as a rule in a dynamo, driven by an engine, which in its turn depends for its power on the chemical process of combustion. In the electric furnace we merely get back a certain fraction of the heat which was produced in the combustion, and the reader might be inclined to consider the whole affair a wasteful cycle of operations. Economical it certainly is not, but the advantage lies in this, that in the electric furnace the heat, which originally was distributed over a considerable space, is concentrated in a fraction of a cubic foot. The effect is locally intensified, the temperature is higher, and this is of the utmost importance, as it turns out, for certain processes. It must be remembered, too, that these objections on the score of economy lose their force in cases where water power is available for driving the dynamos, as it is, for example, at Niagara and in Norway. One of the chief difficulties in working at such high temperatures, as are reached in the electric furnace, is to find a suitably refractory substance out of which the enclosing box may be constructed. Up to a certain point, quicklime is an excellent material. As its employment in the oxyhydrogen limelight shows, it is not easily fused, and it has further the recommendation of being a very poor conductor of heat. This latter property is well demonstrated in an experiment carried out by the French chemist Moussan, whose name will always be associated with the utilization of the electric furnace. In one of the lime furnaces which he employed, the top consisted of a slab of quicklime rather less than one and a quarter inch thick. The electric arc was allowed to play for ten minutes in the cavity below the slab, the temperature rising probably to over 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In spite of this, the slab could be handled on the outside without discomfort, while examination of the lower surface, which had been in contact with the arc, showed that the quicklime had actually been melted over an area of several square inches. The tremendous heat, therefore, which had been generated in the cavity of the furnace, had been completely kept in by a layer of lime one and one-quarter inch thick. With bigger currents and more powerful arcs, even lime furnaces become useless. The lime fuses and runs like water, and ultimately it boils, producing clouds of smoke. The difficulty may be partly surmounted by enlarging the cavity of the lime furnace and making a little platform of one-half-inch plates of magnesia and carbon arranged alternately. Using a device of this sort, Mossan was able to study the behavior of a large number of substances at temperatures up to 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In the earlier part of this chapter it was said that, compared with zinc at least, copper was not volatile. Things are quite different, however, at the temperature of the electric furnace, as appeared from Mossan's experiments. A piece of copper weighing nearly four ounces was put in a carbon crucible in the furnace, which was then warmed up for five minutes by a big current. Soon after the current was turned on, dazzling flames, eighteen inches long, burst out violently through the openings at the ends of the furnace. These flames were due to copper vapor burning in the air, and it was found after the experiment was over that the copper left in the furnace now weighed only three ounces, one ounce of the metal having been converted into vapor. Similar and equally surprising results were obtained with such refractory metals as silver, gold, and platinum. One of the most surprising things accomplished in Mosson's electric furnace was the vaporization of silica. This substance, as the reader may already be aware, is the oxide of the element silicon, and is the main constituent of sand and quartz. Indeed, quartz is nearly pure silica. It is melted with the greatest ease in the electric furnace, and after seven to eight minutes issues through the openings as a bluish smoke or vapor. 
another proof of the really fervent heat which is generated in this way. While the electric furnace has astonished us by revealing the volatility of even the most staid and refractory materials known to the chemist, it has at the same time brought to light a number of substances which are quite at home at these high temperatures. Indeed, it is the electric furnace alone which has enabled us to prepare them. Among these substances are the carbides, compounds of the metals with carbon, and it is in the preparation of one of these, namely calcium carbide, that the electric furnace is most extensively employed at the present time. Mosson showed that by heating a mixture of pure lime and carbon in the electric furnace, calcium carbide could be readily obtained, and this is the method now employed on the manufacturing scale, except that limestone and coke are used as crude materials, instead of lime and carbon. The use of limestone instead of lime does not really involve any difference, for at the high temperature employed the limestone loses its carbon dioxide and is converted into lime. The other material, the coke, is at best a very impure form of carbon, so that the calcium carbide obtained in the manufacturing process is not a pure product. The essential chemical change which goes on in the electric furnace during the formation of carbide is an extremely simple one. Lime is a compound of two elements, calcium and oxygen, but this union is broken by the interposition of carbon at the high temperature of the furnace. The latter element combines with both the calcium and the oxygen, so that these two are separated. The new compounds formed, calcium carbide and carbon monoxide, are quite distinct in their properties, for the former remains in the furnace in a fused condition, while the latter is a gas and escapes at once. As the reader probably knows, the characteristic feature of calcium carbide is that it gives off an inflammable gas, acetylene, on contact with water. One usually regards flame and water as essentially antagonistic, but here is a case where water is a sine qua non in the production of an inflammable gas. The curious action between water and calcium carbide molecules consists simply in a change of partners. The hydrogen of the water unites with the carbon of the carbide, forming acetylene, while the oxygen of the water combines with the calcium of the carbide, forming quicklime, which promptly slakes in excess of water. Acetylene, when burned at specially constructed nozzles, gives a very brilliant flame, more like sunlight in its character than any other artificial illuminant. On this ground, there is much to be said for the use of acetylene for lighting purposes. The portable nature of calcium carbide, and the ease with which the gas can be obtained from this material, are circumstances also which have favored the introduction of acetylene as an illuminant, especially in places where electricity and coal gas are not available. The eagerness of carbon to unite with both calcium and oxygen at the temperature of the electric furnace, as illustrated by the formation of calcium carbide, has found a recent interesting application in the manufacture of phosphorus. The chief source of this element is bone ash, which consists to a large extent of calcium phosphate, a compound of calcium, phosphorus, and oxygen. In the older process for obtaining phosphorus from bone ash, it was put through quite a number of distinct operations but nowadays, with the aid of the electric furnace, a much more straightforward plan is feasible. By simply mixing the bone ash with carbon and heating in the furnace, the carbon annexes both the calcium and the oxygen, forming calcium carbide and carbon monoxide. The phosphorus, on the other hand, escapes as a vapor and is condensed under water in the usual manner. It is not only in the electric furnace that the high temperature of the electric arc has been utilized, but also in connection with the interesting problem of the utilization of nitrogen from the atmosphere 
for agricultural purposes. For the fertilization of the soil, large quantities of nitrogenous material are required, which are at present derived to a great extent from Chile, where extensive deposits of sodium nitrate, Chile saltpeter as it is called, are found. Those who should know best are of opinion that these nitrate beds will be exhausted in thirty years or thereabout, and hence it was that Sir William Crookes, in his presidential address to the British Association in 1898, insisted on the necessity of discovering some way by which the great store of nitrogen in the atmosphere could be made available. The problem is by no means easily solved, for nitrogen is very slow to enter into combination with other elements. With the aid of the electric arc, however, it is possible to induce some of the oxygen and nitrogen in the air to unite, forming nitric oxide, which in its turn can easily be converted into nitric acid or nitrates. This has been known to chemists for a long time, but it is only recently that the difficulties in the way of making the process a commercial success have been overcome. Within the last few years, the necessary plant for carrying out this process on the large scale has been set up in Norway, where power is cheap. The factories there are now turning out large quantities of nitrate of lime, suitable for fertilizing purposes, and capable of replacing the natural nitrate brought from Chile. End of chapter 17